Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. We've never seen this with a former president of the United States. And the question I would have, is this good for our country? Or is this tearing our country apart? I believe we're divided enough. We're in the middle of an election cycle. And I'd like to see this play out and be left to the people. My view is that this is a first step toward letting males play in female sports in general. And so this is a long-term fight. And it's an important enough issue that will win in the US Supreme Court. The Inflation Reduction Act is a huge step forward towards helping mitigate the worst impacts of climate change while also bringing significant tangible benefits to Arizona families. We're looking forward and um, we have been working closely with organizations, nonprofits, government entities um, that are addressing heat issues. We have several prosecutors in Arizona, county prosecutors who have been clear as mud about whether they intend to try to prosecute Arizonans for abortion. And with me to talk about what former President Trump's indictment in Georgia might mean in Arizona, Governor Hobbs declaring a heat emergency and more, our attorney and former congressional staffer Roy Herrera. Good morning, Roy. Good morning. And Marcus Delartino of First Strategic. Good morning to you. Good morning. You guys both excited to try to win that trip to San Diego, huh? Oh, yeah, we're in. Roy and I are going. We'll go together. All right. Sounds great. So, uh, Marcus, let me start with you on uh, former President Trump indicted for now the fourth time uh, in Georgia. Um, There's been a lot of talk about the sort of the impact that might have here based on some of the the documents that included some some stuff that happened. Some folks, Rusty Bowers was mentioned. There's some stuff from Arizona. Does that have any relevance here, do you think? I know the Rusty Bowers guy, but I don't know this Trump guy you're talking about. Um, You know, wow. I don't think anybody will be shocked uh, if Chris Mays comes out with some some, – it certainly hasn't been a secret that she's been conducting an investigation. I I felt like this week somehow it was breaking news and – and maybe I knew something I shouldn't know, but I I thought it was obvious. She spoke about it maybe for the first time publicly. And I think at the end of the day – on the, in that particular matter, I think that she will be looking at those fake electors and not necessarily the former president, Donald Trump himself. Um, I, I'm just guessing that's the direction she's headed. So, Roy, as the attorney in the room, when you look at the at the indictment, what like how does that what does it look like to you? I mean, there's obviously been a lot of people saying, oh, this is a super strong case. A lot of people saying it's kind of a flimsy case. Like when you look at it, what do you think? Well, I think what's new here in Georgia is now we're seeing the actual fake electors be indicted themselves, right? So, you know, there's a couple of things that are new in Georgia. One is that, you know, now we're talking about what is it, 20 plus defendants that were indicted here. So a lot more people that were involved in um, in the conspiracy, if you will. We also now have RICO charges. So we have racketeering charges, which we haven't seen anywhere else. And I think what it shows us, and we've seen this a little bit also with the January 6th indictment in D.C., that there's a lot more evidence, which I think shows what we've known all along, that this was a, a larger conspiracy that came from the top of the uh, Trump campaign all the way down to various states, including Arizona, to put forth these fake electors to try to overturn uh, our democratic process and in, uh, in the outcome of the election, and that they knew that, that Trump didn't win and still went forward anyways with this. And so I think going back to the question about what the attorney general is going to do here is I'm sure, to Marcus's point, that she's looking into the fake electors here on whether they've broken any Arizona laws. And I wouldn't be surprised if we do see indictments for at least those people here in Arizona. 
So what like what would that mean relative to all of the other charges that have been going on relative to not so much just former President Trump, but everything surrounding January 6th and the the election fraud cases and everything? Because as you both have kind of pointed out, Chris Mays is not necessarily looking to charge Trump with something, but maybe Arizonans who were involved in that plot. So how does that sort of fit into the whole picture? Well, I look at it this as in, in, in the interest of full disclosure, I was campaign counsel to President Biden in 2020. So I saw a lot of this up, hand, uh, up front and considered it at the time. But one of the things I'm worried about going forward is that this could happen again. Um, obviously, we have Trump running again in 2024. And I think what's important if these indictments go forward and the prosecutions go forward of the actual individuals involved, the fake electors, people that worked on the campaign, is that there will be some sort of deterrent going forward that these people will understand, like, if I help President Trump in this way, in an illegal way, that I can face consequences. It's not just going to be President Trump that faces consequences. It's going to be me. And so hopefully that means that in, if we're in a world in 2024 where Trump is lost again, we don't see this happen again. What do you think about that, Marcus? I, I think, and to Roy's point, and a shorter way of sort of saying it is, I think Republicans always forget that you're not the only one who can do this trick. So if, we've, if we have accomplished it... It's only next cycle before the Democrats do the exact same thing. So where does that get us? Nowhere uh, at the end of the day. I think um, what will be fascinating about this is, you know, they never they sort of the government never prosecutes you on the original cl- crime. It's the cover up of the original crime. Just ask Richard Nixon how that went yeah. out for him. And so I think what will be interesting is watching this investigation unfold. Um, you know, is it the original charges that get them or is it a cover up that eventually gets them? And there's a lot of high profile people. I think people forget who some of those electors were. There's a lot of high profile people involved in that. Some so, members of the state legislature, for example. It, in exactly. Arizona. So we could there certainly could be some trickle down effect. Does this any of this? I mean, let me ask you the political question, because, you know, we can't avoid that here. Um, does any of that affect President Trump's standing in the Republican primary, either in early states or in Arizona, do you think? I, I think right now the die is cast. I think your undecideds are, a gentle, you know, whopping 1% at this point uh, in the race. So, um, you know, certainly there's a lot of things to unfold. I mean, they're going to go on the stage tonight and minus Donald Trump and, and debate, and we'll see where if that moves the needle at all. Uh, but I think largely the die is cast on that issue. We heard from uh, former Governor Ducey in the montage at the beginning, basically saying in his mind, he'd kind of like to let this play out in the election, not necessarily have prosecutors and courts decide this. Is that the the right approach? Do you think that 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 view is shared by some number of people? I think that polling overwhelmingly shows that that's your best answer. Um, Instead of saying, you know, I want Donald Trump to be prosecuted, I think that Republicans are struggling to find some middle ground and polling shows that that's sort of the best answer. But also, I think it allows on further reflection because I was a little taken aback by those comments. I mean, let's remember what Donald Trump tried to do to Doug Ducey. So um, so I was like, well, so now you're defending him. What are you doing there, Governor? Uh, but I think what most people are, are, are these especially the governor is trying to say, is that these indictments at the end of the day end up in some ways helping Donald Trump. And so what he's saying is, please quit doing them favors, quit indicting them. Roy, do you think that that these, it doesn't seem as though the former president's support has appreciably gone down after the the previous indictments. Do you think it affects his campaign one way or the other, other than potentially having to leave the campaign trail to show up in court? 
Well, I mean, first of all, I, I disagree with what Ducey said there, right? Because from my perspective, you know, a crime is a crime. And if you commit a crime, you don't just sort of get out of that. Um, you don't avoid prosecution just because there's a there's a political question or a political campaign going on. But to your question, um, I kind of agree with conventional wisdom that the indictments um, help Trump in the primary. I mean, we see that in the data. Like, mm -hmm. if anything, he solidified himself as the front runner. He's going to be the nominee for president next year. But then in a general election where you have to win over independence, particularly in a state like Arizona, that will hurt him. And I think that's going to be what happens going forward. And on top of the fact that, of course, like he may be facing two, three criminal trials next year during an election season. I mean, I think that's going to distract him as well. Um, and then also given the fact that he has a propensity to want to talk about these cases in the public, which I'm sure his lawyers hate, but that's what he does all the time, which again just drives down favorability with independence. Let me guys let me ask you guys before we uh, head to break about uh, an emergency declaration the governor issued uh, late last week, uh, late on Friday, dealing with the heat. Of course, July was the hottest on record. It was pretty much unbearable for those of us who live here. Um, Roy, she's gotten some criticism about the timing of this. You know, the you know the major heat wave is sort of over and now declaring this. Her response is, well, this is sort of backfilling money to cities that have, you know, put out money for, uh, you know, all sorts of expenditures, cooling centers and, and whatnot. I'm curious what you make of the, the declaration and sort of the timing of it. Well, I'm glad she did it. Um, I, you know, this is a complicated issue. There's a lot of conversations they had with local officials, things like that. So who knows sort of what was going on in those weeks. And if this is about, you know, backfilling resources, then that's a good thing because we are facing something that's unprecedented. I mean, I, you know, I know this anecdotally because I grew up here. I've spent most of the summers of my life in Arizona, and this is the hottest it's ever been. But we also know that from data that this is the hottest it's ever been, and it is a public health emergency. And it's something that's probably permanent. I mean, next summer, we're probably going to be dealing with this as well. And I imagine now that we're dealing with this and adjusting, we're going to see these kinds of declarations happen again much quicker. Marcus, what role does government have in all of this as opposed to any other entity that could try to deal with, you know, helping to mitigate heat or, or help folks to deal with it? Well, let me can I refer back to your previous question really quick because your your question is what sort of what happened to make this announcement now yeah. and the the answer is the press <laughs> at the end of the day. She was asked by a reporter how many people need to die before we uh, announce an emergency and guess what happened the next day she announced an emergency. So that's how that took place. Is it the role of government to do these things? I, you know, it's the role of government to save lives. Um in, in circumstances where people aren't able to do that and react to emergencies. Having grown up in Arizona and lived here my whole life, I got to tell you, it's hot. It's always been hot. Um, and so I, I struggle with this one a little bit, what we're doing. What I would prefer to do is somebody, in, it doesn't have to be in Arizona, somebody in the greater United States, figure out what is the solution to the fentanyl crisis and the homeless crisis. Uh, because these people are on the streets, they're homeless, and they are dying. Um, and, and that is what we're trying to solve by opening up a bus center or a cooling center or whatever it is. But let's get to the root of the problem. How are we going to get these people who are addicted off and kicking fentanyl and, and solving the homeless issue? It seems like that might be, I mean, yes, but that also seems like a much, I don't want to say much, but it seems like it could be sort of a longer term proposition than, for example, it opening cooling is. centers and giving cities, you know, money to buy water and things like that. I absolutely don't disagree with you. And every city in the United States, major metropolitan cities struggling with this issue, whether you're San Francisco or Phoenix or L.A. But at some point, we've got to figure out a solution. Roy, you mentioned that this is something that's going to keep happening. Can this be sort of a permanent situation in Arizona where like every summer we just get emergency declarations for heat going forward? 
I mean, it could be. It's you know, it's hard to predict. I mean, I, I guess the way I've been looking at this in my mind is that we're getting to the point because of climate change that these things can happen more often, and they're not going to be any different than any kind of other natural, you know, disaster kind of emergency that we have. I mean, whether it be tornadoes or hurricanes or whatever, these kinds of things can happen. The federal government, I think, is going to have to step up in those in those instances, as well as you know, state and local government. I think that's something that's just going to have to be something we prepare for going forward. Guys, there's some back and forth this week between uh, the Attorney General, Chris Mays, and the state school superintendent, uh, Tom Horn, on the issue of dual language enrollment. And uh, guys, I want to ask you, uh, first off, sort of what you make of this of this back and forth. Um, you know, the, the AG and the superintendent have been um, debating whether, you know, the State Board of Education has the authority to uh, to change the rules. Uh, Superintendent Horn is basically saying this is what the voter approved law says. Marcus, what do you what do you make of all this? I think it's a mess. And I, I think we've not heard the last of it that's for certain. But I think it's headed for a courtroom at the end of the day. This is a fight's been escalating. Um, I will tell you, I am slightly biased on this one. Um, only because I may or may not have children in a dual immersion program who are very much smarter than I am. Um, but uh, I, I, th- I think at the end, the end of the day, it's headed for a courtroom. And frankly, I don't think the solution's that difficult to figure out. But there's more to gain in the fight uh, politically than there is in the solution. What's the solution? I just I, I don't see a problem with the system as it exists, frankly, at, that the voters approved. Um, with I the changes the Board of Ed made? With um, – well, Allo- allowing the dual enrollment program. Right. Um, but it seems like we we really want to have this fight for political reasons more than actually a solution I, is my estimate. But I, I certainly could be wrong. Roy, what do you think? I mean, I, I agree that this is going to end up in a courtroom. I mean, we obviously have this this opinion from the attorney general saying that dual language immersion programs are allowed under current law, um, even with the old initiative in place. Um, obviously Horn disagrees and we're going to go to court, but I think this is all about politics because if you look at the data, uh, the dual language immersion programs are good. They're good for, you know, our kids, uh, that are in schools. Um, and so this is really about political points. I think that superintendent Horn, um, you know, wants to make, and it's still kind of amazing to me, to be perfectly honest, that we have a governor Hobbs and attorney General Mays and a secretary of state Pontus, and then a superintendent Horn. <laughs> you know, so we have this natural tension because they have completely different political and philosophical views on education. Well, and to the point, Roy, that that you're making about what the data show in terms of English only versus dual language, like the data seem pretty clear that, you know, having some time in your native language, Spanish or Mandarin or whatever it is, and some time in English seems to be the way to go, at least for most kids. That's right. That's what the data shows. And and that's why I think you're seeing the experts in these school districts uh, employ these kinds of programs to like go forward with these types of programs because they've done, they actually teach our kids. They've done the, the data, they've done the research and they show that these are the good things or the good way to go, uh, to go forward on this issue. Uh, but it's going to go into court and, you know, I'm going to put my, my money on attorney general Mays winning that one, I think. Do you have a, do you have a, a wager that you'd be willing to put down on this one, Marcus? <laughs> Not publicly, but <laughs> <laughs> privately I might be buying Roy a beer later. Um, <laughs> I will tell you that it is amazing, uh, to watch uh, a young brain soak up this information. I t- look at my age, am I learning Mandarin Chinese? No, it's just not happening. Like I'd have to quit my job. You should try though. I want to see <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to go well. But um, you know, starting out at such a young 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 age, these minds are like sponges and the ability for them to to learn a new language uh, early on is just it's really stunning. 
Does this in some way sort of fall in line with the other issues that Tom Horn has been discussing both on the campaign trail and since he's been elected. We'll talk about the the transgender sport issue in just a moment. But, you know, we're talking about uh, English in the classroom. We're talking about discipline. We're talking about social and emotional learning, that sort of thing. Like, does this sort of fall in, in with those other things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and frankly, these were all the things that he talked about on the campaign trail. So it shouldn't be a surprise to, to anybody. Um, and it's sort of a, you know, we're going to roll back to how I did business back when, you know, I was in education type of type of scenario, and it really appeals to sort of, you know, those base Republican voters or some conservative voters. Um, and so we're seeing that sort of play out. And it allows him to sort of, you know, from a messaging standpoint, campaign uh, while in office, meaning that he can use those message points to sort of further uh, his his uh, campaign. All right. So, Roy, I mentioned the the transgender sport issue, and there was an appeals court decision uh, this week allowing uh, two transgender girls to continue playing on girls' sports teams. We should point out this case only deals with these two children. This is not like a broad ruling. But is this a setback for Horn and for uh, Speaker uh, Toma and President Senate President Peterson, who are you know who pushed this law banning transgender girls from competing on on women's and girls sports teams or is it narrow enough that maybe it's not such a big deal for them I mean I think it is a setback and I think it's a, it's a I mean from my perspective a, a good setback I mean I want this to to be set back this is unfortunate the law that we're talking about that was passed by the legislature it's unfortunate that it passed and I think there's a lot of reasons for why it passed that were found in discrimination and here we are with this lawsuit now you're right it's specific to the plaintiffs but the judge said essentially that the defendants hadn't been able to show that there was any competitive advantage you know that that these plaintiffs would have if they participated in the kind of sports that they wanted to or any kind of threat to safety of the other you know students the other student athletes that would be involved and i think that's likely to be the case going forward in a in a more general way so if this does get challenged in a more general way and this becomes precedent um, you know, on whether this law is actually constitutional or not or violates federal law or not, I think this is a good step forward in that and showing that it isn't. Marcus, this is obviously not the only place where this kind of law has passed. There's a lot of states that have passed similar laws dealing with transgender students, specifically transgender girls and, and girls sports teams. Assuming that some of those other laws get challenged, and some have, and most, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think several of them at least have been at least put on hold pending a full trial. That precedent must mean something here, too, even though the case, as we've talked about here, is, is fairly narrow just to these plaintiffs. Yeah, and I would I would say this to the question of, is it a setback? And, and my answer is no, it's not a setback because this case was not the ultimate goal. As Tom Horn, you know, in the opening statement referred to, the Supreme Court is the ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. So this is, it's not necessarily a setback. It's actually for them a move forward because at the end of the day, this case is going to the Supreme Court um, to be ruled not only in this state, but 50. Right. So, Presumably, at least a couple of years down the road. I mean, it's got to work its way through all the various courts before then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think most people would agree the court bends a little bit to the right, if you will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say a lot. <laughs> and so, you know, stick that in sort of the back of your brain as you imagine how the court's going to sort of rule on these issues. All right, guys, let's dive deep into the weeds of elections now and talk about some of the back and forth over the election procedure manual, something we talked about yesterday on the show, basically the how-to book for how the state should run elections distributed to county election officials, that kind of thing. Republicans are unhappy with uh, Secretary of State Adrian Fontes about a few different things, um, among them his interpretation of the law, uh, his the amount of time the public had to weigh in on this. Uh, Marcus, are these substantive 
con- complaints, do you think, or is this more of like trying to score political points against a, an elected official of the opposite party? Can I do all of the above? <laughs> sure. <laughs> choice C? Yeah, absolutely. I'll take choice C, all of the above. Um, I, you know, everybody, I think, saw this coming. I mean, Adrian Fontes is not a, uh, a wallflower by any stretch of the imagination. He was not going to come into office and say, everything's okay. I don't want to change anything. Um, and and he, we saw that when he was county recorder. Uh, you know, he made a lot of changes. Frankly, I disagreed with a number of them, but he but he did make some changes, which also ultimately, you know, sort of forced the board then to take in some of those uh, election duties uh, because they had concern about what he was doing. Um, but so I don't think it's a surprise. I do think this one's headed for court um, and it's going to be it, it's going to be a, a hard, hard fought battle. Boy, Roy, it sounds like uh, lawyers are going to be real busy coming up here. <laughs> I guess that's just the, the nature of modern politics in Arizona, because if there's anybody that's guaranteed employment here are, are lawyers, I think. Um, but, you know, to Marcus's point, I mean, I you know, a, Secretary Fontes has a lot of experience. I mean, he was a recorder in the largest county. I think he knows what he's doing. Um, and I think he's, you know, viewing this EPM as following the law, first and foremost, but then also doing this, doing it in a way that um, allows for the easiest, most efficient uh, the greatest expansion uh, of voting rights um, that is allowed under the law. And I think that's what this EPM accomplishes. Now, we'll see what the final version. I mean, this is public comment and there's public comment from all you know varieties of the political spectrum uh, with suggested changes. We'll see what the final version looks like. But I'm confident it is going to accomplish those things, which is, again, do the right thing by expanding voting rights while also following the law. Roy, we heard some complaints also from those on the left saying maybe it doesn't quite go far enough. Republicans saying it goes too far. Some Democrats saying it doesn't go far enough. How robust are those complaints? Like how I guess maybe how 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 many folks maybe are, are concerned about that? Yeah, we've seen some public comments come from, you know, various voting rights groups here uh, that are more on the left, more on the progressive side of things with suggested changes. And again, we'll see what the secretary does in response to that and whether some of those things get incorporated. But I think, again, you know, going back to this, the, the actual draft that was submitted for public comment, that is uh, a, a very good draft in my pers- from my perspective. And I kind of liken this to like what if we were in this world where like, you know, heaven forbid Mark Fincham was the secretary of state, that EPM would be completely different, right? And in a terrible way. Um, Marcus is right. This probably will end up in litigation. And again, you know, I'm going to put my my money uh, on Secretary of State Fontes and winning that out. Marcus, before we wrap up here, um, I guess maybe we should just be excited that there might actually be an EPM, given some of the recent history of secretaries of state not actually being able to do it. I. I don't disagree. I mean, at least there's something out there. Um, but one of the dangers involved here, in addition to, a, you know, we're looking at a court case, you know, big shocker. Uh, but, you know, the the legislature can always refer something to the ballot. And I the irony here is I would tell the voters, get ready for your ballot to be twice as long as usual due to this, this divided government that we have, right? And so for a Republican majority uh, in the legislature, they can refer things to the ballot without the governor having to sign. And so I would look at, you know, a number of those measures, and it might very well include some changes to how the EPM is, is done. Interesting. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Marcus Delartino, Roy Herrera, thanks, guys, for coming in. I really appreciate it. Thank thanks you. so much. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.